Chase Solutions. This is From My Couch to Yours with Dr. Samira, where we will explore topics and subjects, both big and small, for living our best lives as our best selves and all unapologetically. We hope you enjoy your journey with us as you laugh, learn, listen, and grow. But please remember, this podcast is not intended as a substitute for mental health care with a licensed professional. Sit back, relax, and have a seat on our virtual couch. For more information, visit us at www.chasesolutions.com. Welcome, everybody, to the second uh, episode of From My Couch to Yours with Dr. Samira. Today's episode is... I vacillated with uh, what I wanted to call it or what what topic I wanted to talk about because there's so many things that I I think are great things to discuss. Um, But I want to talk about um, unhealthy relationships, toxic patterns, and various things that fall into those categories. Um, I have all kinds of theories and ideas about um, uh, attachment styles and past traumas and patterns of how people respond in relationships. But um, without getting too heavily into that, I think that um, many of us have have experienced or have vicariously experienced, whether we're listening to stories that our friends tell us or, um, you know, our own personal stories, um, have been in relationships that I would define as toxic. Um, how do I want to define toxic relationships? There's all kinds of, you know, toxic relationships. So I'm not going to talk about specifically like, you know, relationships with narcissists specifically or abusive, uh, physically abusive relationships. But I am going to talk about um, toxicity or toxic uh, components in relationships from the standpoint of um, there's a cycle or a pattern in which um, the individual's needs are chronically not getting met. So um, that's what I'm going to define um, a toxic relationship as in today's episode. So uh, a toxic relationship for the purposes of this conversation is a relationship in which one of the members or both of the members are um, habitually and in a chronic way, not getting their basic emotional needs met in the relationship. And it's chronic as in like, it's, it's continuous. It's, uh, it doesn't, it's, it, you know, it, it doesn't, um, subside. It doesn't really go away. And it's sort of like the, uh, the undertone of the relationship. So, you know, why do we stay in relationships like that? You know, why do we um, persist in relationships where we aren't getting our needs met, um, where we might not be being fully heard or we might be um, maybe you're heard, but your partner isn't adjusting to what your needs are. Um, And I think a big part of that, and I've talked about this in the first episode, and I think this comes up a lot in terms of self-growth and processing various setbacks in your life, has a lot to do with um, the narratives that we create around around love. Um, I did a, uh, I wouldn't call it a presentation, but it was a talk with a group of um, uh, young women, and we talked about the ideas of um, and the overlap between 
love and losing love and, and grief and, you know, akin to losing, you know, someone physically uh, and where the overlaps lie in a lot of that. And um, when you think about toxic relationships, so these chronically toxic relationships where there's just a cycle of sort of just like, you know, I would say lots of little T traumas that happen throughout it. And that could be um, caused by infidelity. It could be caused by dismissive behaviors. It could be caused by, um, um, what's one of the other ones I'm thinking of right now? Um, it could be caused by things where people are, are very, um, vindictive or condescending, like little T's, lots of little, little, little T traumas where individuals are, um, kind of having, um, Lots of little things happen over time that build up over time that can influence um, the partners in that relationship. So um, when we were talking before about, or when we were talking about this in the the group with the young ladies that I did um, this presentation with, we were talking about the idea of our narratives around the narratives we create when we're in relationships with people. And a big part of those narratives that we create are a simultaneous collection, a smorgasbord, really, of um, what is real, right? What's imagined, um, and then also what is projected, like what we hope for, what we what we hope will happen in said relationship. So, in relationships, for example, where you know maybe one partner doesn't want to commit or they are um, ambivalent about committing, for example, um, oftentimes that ambivalence or that um, refusal to reciprocate, let's say, what that other partner might be feeling, are like lots of little T's, lots of little little T traumas that happen over time. So one might ask, well, why do people stay in situations where let's say over and over again, they aren't getting their needs met, um, they are being hurt, um, and they're still kind of sticking around for it. I think a big, gigantic piece of that is um, that the narrative that we create in our heads about both what people are, both what people are capable of doing, whether that be for the positive or the negative, right? You know, you might think, oh, there's no way that person would be capable of doing X, or um, there's no way that this would happen because this person would do Y, right? A lot of that has to do with the narratives we create. They don't necessarily have to be based in reality or even based in the evidence that we might have about those individuals, right? So um, in toxic partnerships, I think a big piece that can be a struggle for um, individuals who are stuck in these sort of loops um, that are difficult to get out of um, have a lot to do with letting those narratives go, right? So in a situation where, um, let's say, the person refuses to to commit or, you know, um, they refuse to or they don't they want to change their ideas and thoughts about having children or around finance or whatever it is, right? And um, the person who's in the relationship who does feel like they would like those things to change or be different, and the evidence is showing that that's not really likely to happen, right? Past behavior is an excellent predictor of future behavior, right? So if past behavior and even present behavior are illustrating that, let's say, that thing that you want your partner to do um, to stop causing those little T traumas is not really something that's going to happen. 
But the narrative that you tell yourself is that, well, they will, or maybe if I do X, they'll change their mind, or maybe they just need more time, or maybe if I were blank, or maybe if I were more Y. Those kinds of narratives can keep you in a loop of waiting for and expecting a change that you will ultimately never see. Um, And part of that is what keeps you grounded and locked into the cycle of the trauma that you're experiencing in that relationship. So you don't step away from it or you don't leave it um, often when you have, you know, tons of evidence to suggest that you should because of the narratives that you tell yourself about it. So if you tell yourself that, um, well, you know, um, this person is really a good person and they really do have my best interests at heart and all the evidence that you've seen in that situation or in your relationship is contrary to that. A big piece of determining and I think beginning the process of separating and um, and when I say separating, I mean separating out reality from fiction. Um, a big part of that is grounded in changing the narrative around what your expectations and your hopes and what what narratives you've created for the partner that you're with. And looking at the narrative that you've created, which, like I said, is is a combination, I believe, of both things that have happened, past experiences, but also are very much based on predictions, like what you hope for, what you hope would happen, um, and uh, based on, you know, both your own interpretations of things and desires that you have personally, but also things that um, you may have seen from that person in real life, right? But in actuality, it is it is a blend of all of those things, but it's not something that's for certain and it's a narrative. It's, it's one storyline, right? One possible storyline. Um, but when those storylines, like I mentioned before, um, don't line up with the actuality of what really is happening in your relationship or even the the reality of what your everyday lived experience is in that relationship, that can be a really good starting place for you to start to align the narrative that you created in your mind with the narrative that's actually the real one. Um, And when you start that process, it can be incredibly painful to let that narrative go, right? And I think we start narratives like that from the moment you meet someone. So on that first date that you meet them and you're like, huh, well, they seem like they have this in common with me and they have this going on and 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 maybe we'll get along because of the following, right? The narrative and the scripting of that narrative starts very early in relationships. So when you think about months, years, you know, down the line, a lot of things have been added to that narrative that can contribute to how hard it is to let those things go. It's not something that you create overnight. Um, And the longer you've created the narrative, I think the harder it can be to unpack it and dismantle it, especially if it really is very different from the reality of what's happening in your relationship. But I think that's one of the best steps for starting the process of unraveling yourself from a toxic romantic situation is to take some steps back to analyze the narrative that you've created, looking at 
how closely aligned the narrative that you've created matches the actual individual behaviors and actions of the individual you're in the relationship with, right? Because we all have heard the saying of sort of, you know, actions speak louder than words, right? They most definitely do. People will do and make priorities and and prioritize the things in their lives that are important to them. So if they're not prioritizing those things or they are not giving attention to those things or they're not giving care love or anything else to the things that um, you might feel like they need to be giving those things to. You have to put into perspective the reality that those that individual may not value those things in the same way that you do. And if that's something that is is very meaningful to you. You kind of have to step back and think about whether or not those um, those parts where you're not aligned are, are possibly and potentially deal breakers, right? So like I said, the first step is to reconsider the narrative that you've created and then comparing that narrative to the reality of what you actually experience in that in that relationship and and tips for doing that have a lot to do with just literally looking at what people's actions and behaviors are not so much what they say because people can say a lot of things but actions and behaviors are very very much indicators of really what people's intentions are um, more so than what their words are Um, so analyzing and looking at and having a close look at their actions especially if their actions are the same over time and you have expressed um, you know, discomfort with that or hurt with that. And the actions continue to be the same despite your expression of what your needs were in the relationship. So those are two really important things to do. The next thing is to create a plan for yourself to make and take action around what you might need to do to prepare to separate yourself once you do, or if you do discover that those two narratives that, that, that I'm talking about are grossly misaligned. And a big part of that, like I said, is starting the process of recognizing that there may be a mismatch in the first place. So, um, for those of you that might have been needing that today, I think, um, it's very common. I think it's common for all of us. We've all experienced this at one point or another, Um, But getting yourself into a toxic situation um, can be easier, easier than you might think it it, it would be. Um, But there are steps and ways that you can restructure cognitively how you think about your role in these relationships and how you think about your partner in the relationship with you. And those can be really good places to start when you're thinking about how to set up plans for how to get yourself in a healthy place for moving forward, whether in that particular relationship or whether it is that you need to move forward in a relationship that doesn't involve that individual. So uh, thanks again for tuning in. And um, I'm looking forward to checking in with all of you next time. Take care and be well. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of From My Couch to Yours with Dr. Samira. I decided to change the format up a little bit, so that took this production a little bit longer than I intended. I decided to do a video recording of this podcast episode as well as an audio recording so that you can get a little bit of an insight into where and how this comes about. Um, 
most of these episodes are just um, my musings that I'd like to share with people that I think would be helpful about various topics. And so um, this is generally how they are um, produced, just like this. So you're going to get a bird's eye view, insider's cut to uh, what this looks like when I make one of these. So um, the episode, or I should say the topic that I want to talk about today is, um, is functional depression. And functional depression, I think during this entire pandemic, I would imagine everybody has had some form of this. It's not a clinical diagnosis of any kind, but um, I think the two terms functional and depression together give you the idea that like you're definitely functioning in your in your life. Maybe you're going into work, you're you're still keeping your job, you're you're going through the paces of your day-to-day life, but you may be also struggling with really deep thoughts of sadness, hopelessness, um, and other things that might be significantly weighing on you. So I think when I think about the term itself, um, where I've most frequently heard about it or heard about, um, you know, a functional and then and attach that with a disorder is probably more layman's terms when you think about people who are described as being functional alcoholics. So, um, People who maybe drink really heavily, they definitely have a problem, um, but maybe they can still get through their lives. They are still going to work. They are still um, getting things done. They're still living partially functional lives at home. Um, But what they're doing and um, the self-medication of it is definitely something that's problematic and is uh, significantly impacts their lives. So when I think about functional depression and I think about what everyone has gone on, I should say, has has experienced this year. And of course, there's things that people have experienced outside of that, including personal things, whether that be, um, you know, personal losses with um, uh, the pandemic itself or personal losses are just related to anything else that went on in your personal life um, or anything else, changes of jobs, just the sort of general uh, malaise of what's going on in the world around us. There's a lot that people are dealing with and carrying every day. And we're all kind of just sort of, you know, going on, kind of trudging on and sort of getting from one place to the next place. Um, and I think that, um, it can be really difficult for people to acknowledge that they may be in a place where their feelings of sadness or what, they have been experiencing or their lived experience is maybe a little deeper than something they should be managing on their own, right? Um, So when I think about when people are in this place, in this place of sort of like, well, I'm sad, I'm unhappy with my life, or um, there are things that I'm not happy with in my relationship, or there's things that I'm really not happy with at my job that really get you down and really kind of get you stuck, um, how often do people actually think they should reach out to someone else about that? Um, and I don't think that people do a lot. I think people sort of have private, um, you know, private moments or private seasons of sorrow that they don't share with other people. Um, and I think that there are different cultural differences and how, how readily people do that. I would say, I think within my own culture, as someone who identifies as uh, an African-American female, I do think that historically we're encouraged to sort of 
put on a brave face and kind of get through things, navigate through things. Um, and it can be really difficult admitting that you actually might need some help with something or that you've been struggling with, you know, gripping anxiety or whatever it might be. That can be really hard to admit to other people. Um, I think when you are someone or, or someone who um, has established themselves either in your community or your professional life or among your friends even as that person who's like the person who has it together, the person who's strong, the person that everybody calls when they have a problem, um, that it can be really difficult admitting that you might have some things that you're working on that you need support with. Um, and it can be hard deciphering when you've crossed over that line. Um, when I think about, you know, my own personal experiences with just life, um, I think 2020 brought a lot of interesting curveballs, to say the least. Um, and I think that it can be tricky kind of navigating different things and, and being honest about your experience while you're, while you're going through those things. I think all things that are traumatic, where there are experiences of loss or just major life transition and things of that nature. I think all of those things can be really unsettling for everyone and for anyone. Um, but I do think that those of us who, you know, like parents and people who are in positions of, um, of, of power where they have a lot of authority or they have a lot of, um, they need to take care of a lot of people, whether that be like professionals in the educational arena, you know, folks that are trying to run and put schools together, for example, um, and plan for that, or whether you're, you know, the head of a household and you're trying to plan for what's going to happen with your children. There's a lot of built-in pressure um, to navigate those things appropriately and also to keep going even when you're running on empty <laughs> or, or you you really, you're running on fumes sometimes, which, which is even worse. Um, but I think that the more that people talk about authentically, talk about their own personal experiences and triumphs with these kinds of things, the more readily people will be able to acknowledge these experiences for themselves and the things that they struggle with to be able to a reach out for help, whether that's seeking out support social systems, whether that's seeking out clinical professional help, um, or whether it's just admitting that to yourself and thinking about what changes in your life you might need to be making to make adjustments so that things are more manageable. Um, so I think one of the the things that you can do in these situations, and like I said, I. I personally have experienced this sort of like, you know, um, in, in my past, um, like a functional sadness where you're sort of like getting through the day. You can, I think I, I think of myself as someone who is um, incredibly resilient. And I guess I would say the train never stops. So regardless of what's going on, there could be, the sky could be falling. I'm still going to be <laughs> hustling. I'm still going to be doing everything that I need to do you know, taking care of the various projects that I have um, on my docket and things that I have as personal goals for myself. But I think, and I think that other people who know me know me to be that person also. Um, but I've been taking a lot of stock in the idea of giving yourself grace. Just like, it's okay, really, for me to be struggling with something. Or it's okay for someone to be hitting a wall in, in a situation that they're in and needing to get 
support and how to navigate that. Um, because doing a lot of this alone is of no benefit to you or really to anyone who's in your circle who, who actually needs you to be the best person in the, in the best state that you could be in, um, to support them, even, you know, when you are supporting other people. So, um, I think one of the things that I wanted to highlight for others in, you know, talking about this in this podcast is, is several things. Um, the first being that there's no shame in hitting those stumbling blocks, whether it's a setback because of like things that have happened professionally for you, whether it's a failed relationship, whether it's, you know, you don't think you're doing the best job as, that you could be doing as a parent, whether you're considering or questioning all your life choices, which I feel like everybody does <laughs> periodically. If you're not questioning your life choices and you're in your 20s and 30s or even your 40s, you know, then you haven't really lived, right? But <laughs> I do think that um, in the questioning of that and in the sort of space in which you can use to evolve and sort of redefine and, and re uh, reestablish yourself is giving yourself grace, right? Giving yourself a get out of jail free card. Like this is a hard situation for me, or this is something that I'm really struggling with, or this is something that I feel like I'm not above water on and I need help with getting to a place where I am above water or where I can take a breath of, of air. And I think that the first step to even doing that is acknowledging that yourself, setting the shame and associated judgment that we all do when we feel like we're falling short in some way, even when we're disappointing ourselves, or we feel like we're disappointing ourselves, is setting all of that aside, setting shame aside, setting guilt aside, and acknowledging your own humanity. Like, Everyone struggles with things. Everyone has a difficult time with things. Every, everyone makes mistakes. Everyone makes poor choices. Everyone is not always showing up as their best selves in a, in a romantic relationship or in a professional relationship or in our lives. We're not always going to be 100 all the time, right? But that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And the first step to being able to get yourself out of those kinds of holes and out of those places and out of those loops of sort of hopelessness is to give yourself grace. You are not alone in what you're struggling with. This is part of the human experience to struggle and to stumble and also to get up and to be able to start over and to be able to dust yourself off. And sometimes you can do that alone. Sometimes you need a whole village. Sometimes you need a support system. And it's okay to need any one of those things or to not need any of them at all. Your process and how you find your way back to yourself is uniquely yours and okay, however it is that you find your way back to that. But the first step to getting there is giving yourself grace. No judgment. Don't be hard on yourself. If you took five steps forward and you took, you know, six back <laughs> and you're starting all over again, that's okay. That's okay. Give yourself grace. And that's the first part of being able to forgive yourself enough to open yourself up for options and opportunities to get help and seek help, whether, like I said, that be formal help clinically or otherwise, um, or just social support, or just you getting back to what kinds of things fulfill you or you making the changes in your life that will make you feel more fulfilled and better about what it is that you're doing in your own life. 
Um, now, the second thing that I would say is really is really critical as well is making sure to identify when you do and when you may have crossed over into needing more specific clinical help. And I do think that keeping your eye on things like, you know, appetite changes, how long you've been in the funk that you've been in, um, how significantly it impacts your life and the different areas in your life, um, and whether or not this is something that, um, that you really can't shake. Um, I think, again, there's no shame in hitting places like that and reaching out for help. Um, I think everyone could benefit from having a counselor or a therapist. It's always great to have a sounding board. If you find a good one, that's exactly what they do. Um, so I just wanted to, to take a moment to talk a little bit about that and acknowledge the fact that many of us um, are going through or have gone or have gone through at some point in your life um, a space in which you may have be struggling with something. It could have, like I said, been something adjustment related, related to something specific that happened, a loss, whether physical or emotional loss, um, or big gigantic transitions in your life, or even little transitions in your life. Again, there's no rules or rhyme or reason for which, which things in our lives are gonna kind of throw us for a loop. But the most important thing that you should take from this is to give yourself grace in those opportunities to forgive yourself and to be okay with where you are, even if that does mean you took six steps backwards after taking five steps forward and being okay with reaching out for help and, um, and acknowledging that everybody needs some kind of support sometimes. Um, so I just wanted to share some of my musings with you all. And um, as usual, thank you for tuning in and I'll see you next time. Bye.